but we are beginning a new book, and this book is not a how to win friends and influence people type of book. Um, in fact, a lot of people kind of avoid this book because it's sometimes so pointed toward us, and um, I feel like I'm echoing a little too much if you want to turn me down just a little bit, but uh, uh, this is not James's personality. He's a very straight shooter. I mean, he, he just gets to the point. Uh, he told you what you needed to hear, not what you wanted to hear. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that want to hear certain things, and they're missing what they need to hear. Uh, the epistle was written by James, and scholars believe that this is a half-brother of Christ, uh, not uh, one of the other three James that are mentioned in the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus' half-brother was not one of the original disciples during his earthly ministry. In fact, uh, uh, you, you could imagine them almost, you know, growing up with a perfect brother. How, how hard is that, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, growing up with brothers is, is difficult enough anyway. I mean, you know, we have two little ones and, and, you know, the ages are about four and a half years apart. And, and sometimes you're just like, come on, just get along, you know, but I don't want to teach them just how to get along. I want to teach them how to love each other, you know, but you could imagine, uh, uh, the family dynamic, uh, dynamics there, but Jesus half brother, um, uh, the, the family is listed in Matthew 13, uh, and they thought they were, uh, uh, the family thought that Jesus was kind of mentally unstable, calling himself Christ, saying he was the Messiah. They came to get him at one point uh, because they thought he'd lost it. Uh, so we ask ourselves, so what brought James to faith? And then if we read the scriptures, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that, he, that Jesus appeared to James after he rose from the dead. And this convinced James that Jesus was the Messiah. And no doubt that James shared uh, this with his brothers and sisters. And we know that Jude also got saved. We don't know about the rest of them for sure. But we know that Jude did because he wrote the epistle Jude. Uh, James went on to become one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem and was a star worth of the faith. Somebody that uh, was looked upon as, as being grounded and understood and, and preaching the word. He was the one that made the speech to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Um, you know, Paul called James one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 2.9. So we learn from early church history that James became a, mare, a man of prayer. In fact, his nickname literally was Camel Knees. If you can believe that. He had calluses on his knees for how much he would get down and pray. And this week I was, uh, I, I know my, I'm probably going to give you weekly updates on me building the, uh, the play set for the kids in the backyard. But I was down on my knees drilling, uh, uh, drilling into the platform and all that kind of stuff. And by the end of the time I got done, man, I, my knees were hurting. You know what I'm saying? Uh, unfortunately, I got a little more weight than I used to. You know, I'm not as young as I used to be. But James, he was down on his knees enough that he had calluses. And we learned that from early church history. Uh, they, we also know that they threw him off the pinnacle of the temple to kill him. And the fall did not kill him. So they ran down and they beat him to death with clubs. I mean, they did not like James. AD 62 is when this happened. And the tradition is he died while praying for his attackers. Now, the date of this epistle, we're not really sure. We do know it was before A.D. 62. 
But he addressed his epistle to the 12 tribes scattered in the dispersia. All the Jews and all the people that are living outside the land of Israel. What is interesting is it has this idea of scattering seeds and you know just going everywhere. So God used the world events that were happening at the time, the persecution of the Jews, and then Jesus comes along and you know, declares himself the Messiah. Many come to believe and they scatter as many of the Jews do, and many of those became Christian believers. Then the government starts to persecute the Christians, and they scatter around the world. It's like little seeds being planted all over the place. And we read about this in Acts 8, 1 through 4. And the result was this great harvest for the souls of the kingdom of God, and the cost was very great to you know, a lot of people. And many became discouraged. And this is one of the reasons why James wrote this book, to say, don't give up. Stay meeting with the church. Keep going forward, keeping your eyes on Jesus. But unfortunately, many had given up and kind of gone back to the world's ways. The riches who, you know, that drew them and, and, and drew them away. This is where the, the parable, the seeds being spread out and some went into the thorns, you know. The riches would pull them away from the gospel. And these people would never, never produce fruit. James was writing to, to some to, to try once again to, to go into those thorns and bring them out in a sense. Many believe that the theme of the letter of James is spiritual maturity. And, and man, we could use more spiritual maturity today, can't we? Yeah. Those who came to believe but, but stayed, you know, so many stayed at that belief stage and never, ever grew up. And Jesus uses the word perfect many times, several times throughout this book. And what he's talking about is a maturity, not perfect as in an I do everything right. I do everything perfect. And, and, and boy, if I ever mess up, I just, you know, it freaks me out. No, no, no. He's saying mature, to be complete, to grow up. And this is exactly what the church needs today. We don't need more playgrounds and nurseries for adults. Those are for children. You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, if I go to a playground and take my child to a playground, if I see a 50-year-old man sliding down the kid's slide, I'm like, I'm not going to be around here. No, I, something's going on there. You know what I'm saying? The only place adults you know, go to Disneyland, okay? Just... You know, take your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or something. You know what I'm saying. We don't need people telling each other what we need to hear or what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. The church needs to grow up. The problems that James talks about in this book are pretty childish. Chapter 1, he talks about impatience and difficulties. Chapter 2, he brings up talking but not following through. Chapter 3, no control of the tongue. How many times do your parents try to wrangle you and tell you, no, 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 we don't talk like that? Ever so often, my child will, you know, Grayson will be on the iPad, and I'll hear, you know, from one of the videos he's watching or something, I'll hear something, I'll go, no, 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 we don't watch that person. We don't talk like that, and here's why. We're believers in God, and we, you know, we're starting that conversation so he can start to understand controlling the tongue. Chapter 4 talks about fighting and coveting. And chapter 5, he talks about collecting material things. This is basic stuff, but for some reason, we need to know it. Now, before we get into the book, I want to mention that 
There's others like Martin Luther who did not believe the, the, James, the book of James was inspired word of God and therefore did not belong in the Bible. James says that salvation is not by faith alone, but faith with works. In Luther's mind, James was not writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit at this point. What you have to realize, though, is Luther and the Reformers were you know, fighting this huge battle against the church for this very issue at this point in time, how a person is saved. The Roman Catholic Church said it was by faith and works. So Luther comes along and says, well, this book, no, this doesn't even, no, it's not inspired. And, and he, was, he was trying to combat that idea that, that the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church said it was a faith and works. In other words, going to mass and confessing and lighting candles and doing penance and keeping sacraments. And if you didn't do this stuff, you weren't a Christian. The Reformers taught that the Bible is very clear on this subject. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. But I don't think James was teaching about salvation, that this was a combination of uh, coupled with works. I don't think that's James' point here. And we'll see that in chapter 2 when we get there. And He didn't teach faith plus works. He taught a faith that saw works as evidence of your salvation, that works automatically came out of who you were. You know, my father, when I got to the day, age of, of dating, he would, you know, right before I left the house, he would always say, now, Alan, you remember you're an or. My last name is Orr for you guys that don't know, but yeah, not an or, yeah. Alan, you're an or, and what he meant was, Remember how you've been brought up and act like that on this date. Belief and action. Okay? God is saying, remember your salvation, and out of that salvation comes actions, faith, and works, or a better word, actions. So if you just believe... And do nothing else were you really saved? I don't know. Thankfully, that's not up to me. That's up to God. I'm not the one judging a person going to heaven or hell. That's God's job. My job is to live out my faith into this world. But all I know is that faith leads to a change in attitude and our actions. Well, let's get into the word. James, a servant of God... And, the, uh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. The term servant of God, the, the word servant means slave here. And, you know, giving ourselves over to God. And we've talked about this uh, in the past. This is a, don't think of American slavery, think of a bond servant. If you couldn't pay your debt, you could go and, and work that debt off. I, I think that's what we call jobs nowadays to the credit card companies. We work to pay off our, okay, maybe just, yeah, okay. But you could also choose to stay at that place if you enjoyed working for that master, that person in charge, enough, and you became what's called a bond slave. They would take the guy literally to the door, and they would take your earlobe, and they would put it to the door, and they would take an hammer and an awl, and they would hammer through your ear and give you a piercing. Now, wouldn't you love that as an adult done like that, you know? 
And, uh, and they would do that, and they would put a golden earring in that ear, and as a symbol that this guy loved his master so much he was willing to stay when he could have left. And this is what, uh, what James is calling us to do with God, to be a bondservant. The apostles loved this concept so much because everyone understood it. So he opened, you know, they all opened up their letters. Uh, many of the letters that Paul wrote was opened up the same way because everyone understood it. We are voluntary slaves to the greatest master in the universe. Now, the 12 tribes he was you know, writing to are Jewish Christians, and it relates to us because we are adopted into the Jewish faith. Some will say it only pertains to the Jews, but I, uh, that is incorrect. They were Jewish believers he was writing to. There's a Jewish flavor to it because he is, of course, a Jew. But there's universal application here. He says, consider, I mean, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Right up front, James is showing the difference between the spiritual and the carnal believers. And carnal, I'm talking about worldly believers. How we see trials, how we go through trials, how we perceive those, carnal Christians look at life from Earth's perspective. And the view of Christianity, Christianity is a vehicle for God to bless them. We have a lot of that going on. A lot of people in the church, the church as a whole, they go to church because it's an idea of, if I go, God will bless me. And it's all about God's blessing to them. And Paul talks about the, you know, people like this in 1 Timothy 6. He said that their godliness is a way to get rich in their view. And Paul says, you need to stay away from that because that is heretical. So carnal Christians look at it from an early, I mean, earthly perspective. Uh, in other words, what can I get out of this? What do I get out of this? God exists to make them happy and to give them treasures. In contrast to the spiritual Christians, you know, see a life from an eternal perspective. They view their, their, their treasure as being built in heaven, denying ourselves, taking up the cross for Jesus, living for the glory of God while on this earth. And it's all about God's glory, not my glory. The first group tends to see trials as this satanic plot against them to destroy their earthly happiness. So the devil needs to be rebuked so they can enjoy the blessings of God. The second group sees trials as a necessary growth in the spiritual development, a part of God's plan to, to better equip us in our service to him. Now, James wants, us to, you know, wants, to, uh, wants the, the reader to change from a carnal to a spiritual view. The difficult circumstances are, are a positive thing and help prepare us. Guess what? Life is unfair. I tell that my, my child all the time. Because <laughs> he, 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 every year he's gotten the Fairness Award at school, okay? He's very fair. Everybody should, you know, something's being split up, everybody should get their portion. You know, he's very fair. And sometimes I have to tell him, life is not always fair. You can be fair, 
But life is not always fair to you and the things that happen. Other people aren't always that way. Life is not easy. God chooses to put us through various trials to strengthen us, to prepare us, and to teach us, and to draw us closer to him on a daily basis. This is essential for us to be victorious in him. Carnal Christians don't see things that way. They don't see them that way at all. God only exists to bless the, you know, bless me, they would say. Come to Jesus. He will bless you and he will prosper you. That's the whole idea. And that's where the focus is and that's where the focus stays. And it never goes beyond that. It never matures them. God wants to do that. God wants to bless us, just not in the way that we are always thinking. They pull out one or two verses of blessing and try to build a whole theology off of one or two verses taken out of context. And context is always the key. This is about seeing life from an eternal perspective, which is difficult without God being central part of our life. He says again in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When you come across them, when you encounter them, this is, this is what the, uh, the Greek means here. In our Christian walk, when we encounter things along the way, verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The word perseverance in the Greek is the word hupomone. Hupo means under, and mone means to stay or to abide or to remain. In other words, not run away from the trouble. So it seems to, to remain under the pressure, under the burden, and this is associated with, with ministry, the attacks of the devil. When pressures come, the trials come, we don't run away, we hang in there, and we ask God for help in dealing with it, choosing to stay instead of trying to escape. James is saying that trials are beneficial to us. And us, that we're supposed to remain in the race, the, the, the ministry that God has for us in this life. Trials will do one of two things for us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. It will, it will burn up the wood, hay, and stubble. And what is left is who you truly are. Have you ever noticed that? You go through something difficult and it shows you who you truly are. And sometimes we're okay with that and sometimes we're, we're frightened about that. Sometimes we're upset about that because of the way we handle something. You know, there's all sorts of people that come to church and through different trials, God will allow things to, to happen to see if they will stick around or see if they will, will stay with God. And I don't mean, oh, you know, uh, we have a visitor, so, oh, you know, you, you got to stick around. I, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying stick around the church as a whole, the community of God. Are you going to stick with God or not? God will allow these things to happen. And some will just leave and say, I didn't sign up for this. This is too difficult. Others will leave and they'll come back and, and we celebrate when they do. And then you have the Star Wars of the faith who hang in there by God's grace throughout their whole lives going to church and doing ministry and reaching out to the world. And while we hang in there, it keeps us close to God. It purifies our hearts. It purifies our lives where it actually becomes an easy choice to persevere, to stay in faith, even when things get difficult. So it weeds out the uncommitted and strengthens the faithful. 
And I've been talking with several pastors. Uh, we have a group that gets together all the time, and a good group of, of men and women. And, and we, we've been talking about how the coronavirus and what it's done to the church. And unfortunately, there's those that, that have gone away and won't come back to the church. And I'm not just saying just because somebody's not physically here that, you know, means that they're a carnal Christian, they've gone away and never going to come back. We're still going to reach out to them. We're still going to pull them in. They're, they're, you know, I have no problems with, uh, the, you know, those that are consistently watching online and, and so forth. And we thank you for watching online and you know, being a part of the church. It's just for one reason or another, they're staying away right now. But there are others who have enjoyed their Sundays free. I can tell you, I like doing my sermons a little early on video and having it just produce on Sunday and praying that it all works. And a couple of times it didn't and, you know, it was irritating. But, but then I could go on my weekends because my wife works Monday through Friday. So then we could go on the weekend. We enjoyed that. But we also dearly missed the church, the church body. You guys, we miss that. And we're not going to say, well, to heck with Sundays. Let me just, I enjoy this weekend thing. No, we're committed to that. Not just because it's a paycheck. If I wasn't working in ministry, I would still be missing it. Because we enjoy the body of God. But there are those that miss church so much that they don't miss church. And it's unfortunate But I believe that God is allowing this burden, this trial, to weed out the church a little bit and to say, are you truly committed to me or not? Now, again, I think we need to be loving and we need to be talking to those who aren't back yet and trying to pull them back, trying to reach out to to mature them, to bring them back under the fold. But James uses the word testing of our faith. It is the word for refining metals, the refiner's fires, we call it. Burn off the impurities. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1. He says, in all all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have, uh, have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, with perishes even though, ref, uh, even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When you get saved, our faith is like this raw gold ore. Anybody watch Gold Rush on TV? No one watches Gold Rush. It's on Discovery Channel. It follows this group of people up in uh, northern, uh, in, in Canada, I think it is. Uh, they were in Alaska and then in Canada. And they're, you know, it's the whole idea of pulling the gold out of the ground and so forth. And they get all this gold and, and it's just beautiful, but it's raw. It hasn't been refined yet. And ever so often they'll do a video where, where the, you know, they put it into the refiner's fire, the, 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 the little thing, and they'll pour the gold in there. And, and as the gold starts heating up, all the impurities come to the top, and they can get all that out, and the gold can be pure. And that's what happens to us. You know, our faith, when we come to God, we're just like this raw gold ore and, and you, know, pull, uh, you know, pulled out of the mud of the mountain and surrounded by darkness and rocks and the pressure of the world is all around us. The value is there, but a lot of other stuff is there also. The goldsmith puts it in the, in the pot and heats it up really hot and the gold melts and the impurities, like I said, float to the top. 
This happens several times until all the impurities are gone. This is the same way as our faith. At the beginning, it's raw. Trials have a way of releasing the impurities by getting us to examine our hearts to see what what impurities are there. It gives us a chance to see what's there, gives us a chance to repent, gives us a chance to confess, so God can remove those things. Then we submit to the process, and the more we submit to it, the more we reflect our Creator. And this is the goal of the Christian lifestyle, to be used by and for His glory. Verse 2, it says, consider it, all poor, uh, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I love the word mature here. Again, some versions use the word perfect, and I, lo- I like the word mature so much better. This is one of the main reasons that Christians don't grow up. We don't exercise perseverance. We don't exercise patience. We just want to get through with whatever is happening. We don't hang in there long enough. We just frantically run around trying to get ourselves out of trouble. Unfortunately, what happens, most of the time this leads us to stay in the problem longer instead of just relying on God and asking for that wisdom of how to take care of things in a godly way, in a godly manner, because we're not maturing unless we do. So our mindset needs to change about trials. We need to pray through them and find out why we're in the middle of the trial. How do we figure that out? By asking God, what are you trying to accomplish here, Lord? Because I don't get it. See, our whole life is a school, so let's not fail the course and take it over and over and over again. Anybody do that in college? Okay, maybe you don't want to raise your hand. Okay. You ever had to take a course a second time, you know? You don't want to have to go through that again. Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only so, but we also glory in the sufferings, in our sufferings, because we know the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, but because God's love for us has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what do we do with all this? Well, verse 5 of James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, let me say this. Intelligence is, a, is a, a, an accumulation of information. Wisdom is the proper application of that information. Those are two different things. A person can be full of information and still be a fool. Many scientists are amazingly smart I mean, I used to live up near the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. The highest GPA per capita in America for a town. They have the most PhDs. And I can tell you, there were some fools up there. 
who did not recognize God. Now, there were many that did recognize God. I went to some great intelligent men that we're still friends with and, and stuff, and some of the things that they did is just amazing. And, but they recognized God in the middle of it all. But intelligence means nothing to God if you don't recognize that he is in control. It means absolutely nothing that a person, you know, has this book of knowledge in a sense. We live in a culture that worships knowledge. It's almost become a religion. That and politics. No matter what spectrum you're on, okay, it's become a religion. And we need to combat that. We worship these things, and God says don't. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godly, uh, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The heavens declare the glories of God. Unfortunately, many just don't see it. They don't want to see it. They're blinded, even after they've been shown it. You can't have a creation without a creator. As we talked about many times going through the book of Genesis. Just like you can't have a building without an architect or a builder. It had to have a source. God is the ultimate source. He goes on and says in that same scripture, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, being birds and, and animals and, and reptiles. Being smart is not wrong. I have intelligent kids. I want them to be smart. I want them to do well in school. I want them to do well in this life. But more importantly, I want them to know God. That that be their foundation, not their intelligence. Knowledge doesn't always equal wisdom. The proper application of God's word is wisdom. So we need to ask God for grace and the understanding to properly apply what we, what we learn. And this is divine wisdom based on knowledge of the word. But it's not just the knowledge. Many may know the Bible. There's been many people that know the Bible, but they don't properly apply it. There's a whole philosophy, you know, the whole idea that Jesus is love is a great example. Jesus is love. We would all agree with that, right? You would all, okay, shake your heads so I know you're listening. Okay, you know. Jesus is love. We all agree with that. We, that's great. Therefore, we should accept everyone just how they are. Wait a second. Yes, we can accept people, but we also need to point out when sin is sin. Now, you all think I'm going to go one direction, but let me go another direction. Oh, the adulterer. Oh, well, that's just, you know, Jesus is love. We should just love them for the way they are. 
It's okay if they've had multiple affairs with multiple people within the church or outside the church, right? We just accept them because Jesus is love. We just accept them, right? No. We point that adultery out as wrong. Just like the drunk. Just like everything else. This also goes to homosexuality. That goes against the word of God. It's not that we don't love them. We just don't accept that that is true and worthy of God. Sin is sin. We gently rebuke. The idea of gently rebuking is to bring them back into the fold. As many who don't return to the church, we need to rebuke them, but gently and say, return, come be a part of the family. There are theologians that know the word, yet, de- you know, yet deny the virgin birth. Think about that one for a second. They deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Deny that, that he's the only way to heaven. They know the word, but have no wisdom to apply it correctly. It's important to study the word of God, but it is just important to apply it correctly. Now, sometimes we might apply something incorrectly. I know there's been times when I've taught something some way, and then, then you know, later I find out, ooh, no, I, uh, I messed up on that one. I, uh, uh. And then I come back and say, you know what? After studying that more, I, I think I got this wrong, and let me tell you why I got it wrong. That's okay. We're going to do that sometimes. But that's where we ask for the wisdom of God. So how do we become wise? Well, if you want to you become wise, it all starts with the fear of the Lord. The healthy fear of the Lord. The desire to please God and not upset God. That's what, what Solomon asked for. He asked for wisdom and carrying out justice for the kingdom so he could please God. And I couldn't read the scripture earlier because the fan blew my pages. And I'm like, where'd it go? Where'd it go? When I was doing a communion, I couldn't find my scripture because the fan, you know. But it's that healthy fear of wanting to please the Lord. Solomon also talks about this, and you know, all through Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 1.7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then Proverbs 2, 1, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out the, for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of the wicked man, from man whose words are perverse. In other words, whose words are the world's ways. Now, not everyone is evil in the world. But there are those out there telling us that God doesn't exist. That man is God. That we answer to ourselves. 
Solomon is talking to his son here, saying, look, the only thing that matters is your fear of the Lord. If you give yourself to that pursuit, you will have great treasure. It will be eternal treasure. You know, the Bible, for some reason, I don't know why, doesn't give an answer to every issue that comes up in life. Did you know that? Not every issue is in there. Imagine that. How big would the Bible have to be to cover every issue that ever happened in life? <laughs> I think the book of Genesis would fill up the world if God wrote everything that happened in the book of Genesis. You know what I'm saying? But it does give us the principles to apply to the problems. This is why we need to ask God for wisdom. This is knowing what to do and how to act during the trial. Many times we find ourselves in a trial, a difficult one, and we ask, God, why are you allowing this? And there's usually one of two reasons, to either move us on or to toughen us up. God used trials in Egypt to get his people you know, ready to leave Egypt. We had a major trial in America over this past year and a half, and uh, you know, so the question is, are we clinging to the things of this earth too much? Is God preparing the world for, you know, for the next stage? I don't know. I just know that every person has been affected by this one way or another, and we need to be focused on the finish line. Maybe you're going through a trial, and God is going to move you on in your job or in your life or something. And this is where proper application comes in. You can't say, oh, so I can give up on my marriage because I'm going through this trial and God's just trying to move me on. No, God, God is not moving you on from marriage. God wants you to stay in marriage, okay? God doesn't want divorce. Sometimes he allows it, but that's not his desire. Perseverance, toughen up, hang in there. God wants us to, you know, to toughen up and to be able to be used by him. And we can't do this if we're always running from God. So we need to ask God for wisdom, and this wisdom will never result in a scolding from God. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it would be given to you. Proverbs 3, 5, you know, 5 through 7, trust the Lord with all your heart, and not lean on your own understanding. We all know that part, but do we know the next two verses? In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. God wants us to ask for wisdom because it leads us down a good path, a great path, one that teaches us, one that refines us, and the devil has a path that leads to destruction. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Verse 6, when, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. When you doubt, we should not, or when we ask, we should not doubt. Why do we doubt? Well, we feel unworthy. Why would God give me wisdom that I don't deserve? Now, it's true. Guess what? We are unworthy. We're sinful people, but that's irrelevant. We don't deserve anything, but God gives it to us anyway. We receive his grace through salvation. God doesn't owe that to us, but we shouldn't allow the devil to beat us down so much that we run away from God because God loves us. God loves you. 
He wants you to do his will. Others believe that God is, you know, too busy, so why ask? But we forget that he knows every hair on your head. We are that valuable to God. And the third group, James doesn't really address this group, but I think it fits. There are those who are angry with God for allowing them to go to the trial in the first place. So they never get around to asking God why. See, trials can be a blessing, not a curse. There's a cost to following Jesus. We give up our rights and we give them over to Jesus. We say, come to Jesus, which is correct. But sometimes we forget to say, there's also a price to pay in giving our lives over to God. Because he is now in control of that. Jesus is saying, if we ask and then doubt, we're like a wave tossed to and fro in the wind. You know, uh, I, if you've ever been out on a lake, you know, on a boat or been in the ocean and when the wind whips up, I mean, it just kind of tosses you wherever it wants to go. You know, I always, I always tell you different stories about Canada, but once we were out on the lake and the, the wind got up and our motor quit and it was me and another guy who hiked over to another lake. And luckily we had an oar, more than just me in the boat, and we grabbed the paddles and we started paddling and the wind was coming up and it was just kind of tossing us everywhere. We finally made it to shore and got our rope and drug the boat around to where it needed to go so we could tie it up so we could grab all our stuff to go back. But I tell you, when you're you know, tossed around in the winds and the waves, it's not always fun. Ephesians 4 14 says, then, when we will, uh, then we will no longer be infants tossed uh, back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For he, from him... The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does the work. You see, God is our foundation. So let's get into the word. Let's not ignore it. Let's ask for wisdom. Let's not cherry pick verses here and there that fit what our mood is, but read the whole thing in context, the whole chapter, the whole book, the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God is important. This way, when somebody comes up with a new philosophy and they start talking to you about it, your antennas can go up and they can either say, wow, this, this, this does match the word of God. Yeah, that fits with, with Genesis. That fits with, with, with Ezekiel. That, that fits with, with John. That, you know, that fits all the way through. Our antenna go up and a red flag starts waving in the wind going, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. What they're saying doesn't match up. It matches with that verse or that little context, but it doesn't match with the totality of God. And that's so important. That's where wisdom comes in. And we need to ask wisdom from the Lord. Because we can be blown away by every teaching. The church today has itchy ears where someone will tell them what they want to hear. And sadly, not what God wants them to hear. Let me end with this, verse 7 and 8. 
that, sh- uh, this, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Double-minded means to be two-souled. One on earth and one for heaven. Guess what? You can't hold on to both. You can't serve two masters, as the Bible says. Time to get off the fence. Don't be up and down in your, in your faith. Choose whom you will serve this day, as Joshua says. Are you going to serve the Lord of heaven, or are you going to serve the Lord of earth, which is the devil? It's simple, yet so difficult. And we need to ask the Lord for wisdom to choose right. It's called a call to commitment. And that's what the whole book of James is about. Are you going to commit your life or are you not going to commit your life? Are you going to stay a child or are you going to mature into a great man and a great woman of God that represents his glory in this world? Amen? Amen. Well, I've gone a little long today, so um, if, if you will be so kind, we'll just pray and finish up today and not do the last song if that's okay with Tyler. Not that he's going to say no at this point, but uh, uh, why don't we stand and we will pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, your word, your wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that as we read it, that you will give wisdom to us. We don't deserve this wisdom, but you, you say you, you give it to us freely, and we ask for that. Wisdom how to live our lives, wisdom how to, to treat others, wisdom uh, how to be around our family, wisdoms in, in our job, in our financial decisions, all the decisions that we have, Lord. We need more wisdom in, in our life, and we need to match that to your word. I pray, Lord, for, for the things of this world not to overtake us, that when, when we're in the middle of trials, that we persevere through that and that we rely on you and we don't run away. Now, again, Lord, I ask for, for your comfort to the, to the Shutt family, for Bill and Nona and the daughters and, and all those who, who mourn, that they would none, know and understand that she is in heaven worshiping you now. We thank you for her life, and we thank you for our lives. We don't know the number of our days, Lord, but we ask for wisdom enough to live it righteously while we're here. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May his wisdom overtake your life and may it be reflected in this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. that the highest king would welcome